The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Psalm 19, 7 through 10. Y'all are probably tired of that verse, but you're going to get it two more times next week. I think that it's pretty important. Welcome, and I'm really glad that you are here this morning for so many reasons. We get to sing together, we get to pray together, we get to be encouraged, we get to be recharged, and we get to spend the next 26 minutes savoring the Word of God together. And I'm excited about that. You know, there isn't a place that I would rather be or a word that I would rather hear than God's. More to be desired than gold and sweeter than honey. That's what it is. You know, it can be really easy to come to church and to sit in a pew and to focus on what others do for you. I mean, think about it. Someone leads you singing, you listen to a sermon, you listen to a Bible class, and a lot of the things that we do in this space are very passive. But now is the time in the history of Oldham Lane where we need contributors more than ever before. Our default mode, I think, is consumer mode. But it's time to shift, and to help us do that, each week before we jump into the sermon, I'm going to take a few seconds to do a little bit of bragging on some of those who are contributing in powerful ways. I can't cover everything, um, but a little bit at a time, I want to pull back the curtain just a bit and let you see the inner workings, some of the things that are happening behind the scenes. You see, this is a wonderful place full of people who love God and serve Him daily. This uh, past Saturday, there were 20 members of our youth group and a handful from our congregation who came together and put together 8,200 meal bags for Mission Par Cristo. These bags are going to be shipped to Central America where churches in Nicaragua and the surrounding areas are going to be able to feed over 48,000 people who are living in poverty. Just want to brag on our youth group a little bit, brag on our missions committee and all of those who, who worked to help make that a possibility. Uh, Thank you for your support in making this happen, and we want to be sure. Luke said he wants you to stay tuned because he's going to have another ask soon, and he wants everyone to show up because next time we're going to pack 30,000 bags instead of 8,200, so that's the plan. Excited about that. There are always ways to serve and a lot of really cool things happening here. Now, this morning we find ourselves smack dab in the middle of our key text, 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17, and I want you to open your Bibles and turn there. We're going to work through the second of our three-week series entitled Anchored. Let's start by reading this text together. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Last week we discussed verses 14 and 15 and the realities that anchor us, the ways that people connect us with the sacred writings which connect us to our salvation, and that's the anchor that holds us fast and keeps us from being tossed around by the the changes in life. 
And this week, as we continue to explore our text, as we desire it like gold and, and savor it like honey, we're going to see the, the key roles that Scripture plays in all of this and why. And there was a mailman, he was walking up to a house, and he was going to deliver the mail, and he found the owner sitting outside. He was about to walk up, but he paused, because right there beside the man was this big dog. Kind of looked, looked mean, so he asked, does your dog bite? No, said the man. So the mailman walked up and handed the man his mail, and then he bent down to give the dog a pat on the head, and as he does, the dog snarls and bites him on the arm and then runs off. Well, he's obviously pretty upset about this, and he turns to the man, he said, I thought your dog didn't bite. And he was pretty disgusted. And the person said, well, it doesn't. That's not my dog. (laughs) Asking questions is really important, but asking the right questions is even more important. (laughs) You know, so much of Bible study boils down to this. Spending enough time with the text to begin asking questions. And then continuing to spend time until you begin to ask the right questions. This morning, we're going to ask and answer three primary questions that I think were provoked as a part of our study last week. You know, last week we said, saw Paul make reference to the the sacred writings, and then he stated that they make us wise for salvation. And we read this, and we wondered what it meant for us, but we really weren't done. There were questions that needed to be answered, questions like these that are up on the screen. What writings was he talking about? Why are they sacred? And how exactly do they make us wise for salvation in Christ? You know, I love how Paul writes. He'll make a statement that that challenges us, that might cause us to ask questions, maybe confuse us a little bit. And then he'll go on and he'll build a supporting case for that statement. He'll talk about why he made it and how things work. And that's exactly what he does here in our key text. You see, in verses 15 through 16, we read how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So what writings was he talking about? Well, verse 16 tells us all scripture. So we're going to begin this morning by unpacking exactly what he meant by this. Why are they sacred? Well, verse 16 tells us that they are breathed out by God. That's a powerful image, and we're going to dive into it a little bit and and see what this implies about Scripture and our relationship with it. How do they make us wise for salvation? Well, I have to admit, as I begin developing the sermon, for like the first half of my time spent, I was making a really good sermon about how teaching, reproving, correcting, and training in righteousness did just that. And then I started looking at the text, and I realized that sometimes our first inclination isn't, might be good, but it isn't always the correct one. It was a good reminder of how important it is to slow down and not jump to conclusions and ask the right questions. That last half of verse 16 belongs with next week. Okay? Verse 15 is where we're told where salvation flows from. In verse 15, it says, through faith in Christ Jesus. The sacred writings... The God-breathed scriptures provide this wisdom by developing within us a faith in Christ. Could you hit the next slide, David? Next one. There we go. Through faith in Christ Jesus. Um, We're going to end today by unpacking this and very important function of scripture and what it looks like for us. So, let's turn our attention to verse 16 first and let's look at this. What does Paul mean by all scripture? 
Paul is further developing this idea of the sacred writings, giving it more meat and helping us understood what he meant as he encouraged Timothy to rely on these sacred writings. See, the sacred writings were scripture, and they weren't just parts of it. They were all of it. Paul is first and foremost referring to the Jewish Old Testament when he writes here. You know, when a Jew used the word scripture, this is what he would have meant. He would have been talking about the the 39 books that we have in our Old Testament. They had it divided into 22 books, but it was the same text. That's what they would have thought of. It would have included several different styles of literature. It would have had history and prophecy and wisdom literature and even some of the crazy apocryphal stuff in the book of Daniel. When Jesus answered to Satan in Luke chapter 4, it is written, these are the words that he was referring to. These would have been the scrolls that were stored in the synagogue, the scrolls that would have been used as textbooks to teach a young Jewish boy to read. All throughout the New Testament, the Old Testament writings are are referenced. 29 of the 39 books are directly quoted as authoritative in the New Testament. And of the remaining 10, we find allusions to many of them. Now, we obviously have a broader understanding of Scripture today in that when we speak of Scripture, we include the New Testament. So I asked myself, is there any chance that Paul had this in mind when he wrote? We actually do have evidence that very early on, there were other writings considered part of Scripture. Turn over to 1 Timothy 5.18. This is a prior letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. And here he calls a verse from Luke chapter 10, verse 7, Scripture. Meaning that he considered Luke's gospel to be Scripture. 1 Timothy 5.18. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. You see, the ox portion is a quote from Deuteronomy 25.4, straight from the Old Testament. But the laborer portion, this is a direct quote from Luke chapter 10, verse 7. And while we might find the idea in the Old Testament, the wording comes exactly from Luke. Paul likely had access to and considered Luke's writing scripture. That's interesting. In 2 Peter 3, 15-16, we see that, that Peter viewed Paul's writings as scripture. That text says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. So Peter, very early on, viewed Paul's writings as comparable with Scripture. The same phrase isn't used, but the concept's presented even earlier in the same letter, 2 Peter 3.2. He references the commands of the apostles, and he says this, You should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Paul understood himself as sharing commands from God in 1 Corinthians 14, 37. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. He similarly claims divine authority in 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 when he writes, When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. 
This isn't just Paul. John claims inspiration in Revelation 1-3, and he does a similar thing in 1 John 4-6, declaring that to listen to us is to listen to God. So what does all of this mean? Paul would have included some recent writings under the umbrella term of Scripture, as would other New Testament authors. While Paul is without a doubt referring to the Old Testament here, we can't exclude the emerging New Testament. It wasn't complete yet, but there were certainly other writings that were authoritative and were a word from God. This verse specifically references the, the recognized Old Testament in the form we have it today, but by implication can be extended to the emerging New Testament that we have today. Now, this is a question that still matters. What is all Scripture? You know, there's been a lot of harm done by New Testament scholars who've questioned whether or not the Bible we have today contains the correct books. You know, we can believe that Scripture is inspired, but if we get to choose what counts as Scripture and what doesn't, then we gain a lot of freedom to make a lot of different choices about how we should act and how we should believe and what we should do. Probably the biblical scholar who actually happens to be an atheist, which is interesting, who's done the most damage is a man by the name of Bart Ehrman. And he took ideas from an older scholar. His name was Walter Bauer. And he put them forward to the public in a way that was really accessible. A lot of the ideas that are swirling in our culture today come from the writings of these two men. Specifically, Dr. Bauer proposed that early on, at the beginning of, of when all of this was being put together, there were all sorts of writings, varied writings that were floating around and being circulated. And the Bible that we have today was actually the result of these powerful political characters coming together and deciding hundreds of years later what should and should not be included in the text. And Dr. Ehrman latched on to this idea, and, and he, he kind of proposed that if that was the case, we can't trust the Bible it's just a human development. It's not anything divine. This simply doesn't fit with the evidence that we have. And it appears that early on there was general agreement on what was considered authoritative and what wasn't. In fact, we see this idea emerging in the New Testament itself. I've shared some of the, some of the writings from the New Testament that point to the fact that they saw a certain subset of writings as special when we look at extra-biblical writings, uh, historical documents, we see the same idea is present. While the official compilation of these books wasn't selected until the Nicene Council in 325 AD, we believe that this was in response to the heresy that had slipped in. This was an attempt to restore, early on, to restore them back to the true canon, to the selected writings that needed to belong in the book. If y'all are nerds like me, there's a book called The Heresy of Orthodoxy that you should read um, that, points, uh, that, that unwraps this a lot more. But suffice it to say, the collection of these books happened early on. The boundaries were well-defined early in history. There were accurate means in place to transmit the text down to us in a way that it can be trusted. And while Paul certainly would not have been referring in this text to the New Testament as we have it today... I think it's fair to read this verse in a way that applies to all of the New Testament, understanding that this principle that he puts forth applies to it all. 
So back to my original question. What does Paul mean by all Scripture? Well, when Paul references all Scripture, he's referencing the collection of writings traditionally recognized by the Jews as being inspired and a handful of other recent writings from uh, other authors. When we read this passage, we can reasonably include the entirety of the New Testament canon by implication. I think we're a little behind on the slides. Let's give a few clicks, and I'll let you know when we get there. Okay, we can pause. We can pause right there. This brings us to the next question. What does it mean for something to be breathed out by God? Next slide. Practically, we know that Scripture was written by numerous different men in various different styles, and throughout Scripture, this was presented as a very normal way for God to communicate. In 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21, we read this. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Or Luke 170, we read that God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Or Acts 116, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. Or Acts 3.18, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So we can see that they understood despite men writing or speaking these words, they were acting as a voice piece for God. The words didn't originate with them. The very words in our key text today help us see that Paul understood these words as coming from God. It's as if they had been spoken by him. Some translations use the word inspired. Literally, the text reads, God breathed. Paul is telling Timothy that every single scripture came from the mind of God. That means every phrase mattered. Each word, even to the very tense, matters. The scriptures reveal the mind of God. God wrote this book. I have that written in the very front page of my daily Bible. And I know that a vast majority of you believe this, but I'm not sure we allow the reality of what that statement means to properly set in. This has major practical implications. That means that that this book isn't just literature. You know, it isn't just something you curl up with by the fire and enjoy. As the weather's cooling off, I don't know if y'all are like me, but I love to start a fire in the fireplace, and nothing beats a good book by that warm fire on a cold day. And that's certainly something you can do with this book, but you can't do just that. This isn't just a good story meant to provoke feelings. It does that at times, but it isn't just for that. It's so much more than the classics. They might strike a nerve of humanity that seems to transcend time. I mean, this book does that, but it isn't just that. All of those things can be done and have been done with the writings of men. Not all men, but but skilled men have for years caused all sorts of results from their writings, and they're wonderful, and they're admirable, and they're valuable, and and we latch on to them, and we love them, but, but this is different. 
we can dig deeper into this than any other writing. In fact, we should. This teaches us where we came from. It teaches us why we exist, why we live, and why we move, and why we have our being. It doesn't just observe and toy with reality. It explains it. It teaches us what is right. It teaches us how to live, and it teaches us why. It's unique, and it's valuable, and it's important. And that's why we're going to keep reading Psalm 19, so that we can get into our heads how valuable these words are. We put value on so many odd and fleeting things. What does it look like when someone really believes in something? Jesus told two back-to-back parables to describe what this would be like. One about a farmer, one about a merchant in Matthew 13, 44 through 46. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Both of these people sold everything that they had because what they had found was more valuable than all that they owned. For them, it was a math problem. Psalm 19, 7-10 claims that the truth of God is more desirable than gold and sweeter than honey. Genuine and true belief always manifests itself with action. What do you believe? You know, there's an old story told of an occasion in 1799, a long time ago. There was a a 12-year-old boy, his name was Conrad Reed, and he skipped church, and he went fishing in a little meadow creek on the family farm near Fayetteville, North Carolina. He was attempting to spear a fish. And he missed, and his spear struck this odd-looking rock, and so he dug it out of the river and um, carried it up to his house. It was this beautiful kind of gold-looking rock, and it sat on their front porch for a long time until one day when his father, John, decided to take it into town and and show it to the town jeweler. Now, the jeweler recognized that this 17-pound rock was a large gold nugget, and he offered to buy it from John for whatever price that he wanted. So John thought, well, it's a pretty rock. It's pretty nice, and he sold it for a week's wages, $3.50, one-tenth of its real value. Now, most of us on hearing that story get a little bit of a sinking feeling in your stomach. I could hear it ever so slightly. We wonder how incredibly ignorant it was for John to sell a 17-pound golden rock for $3.50. By my math, that would be worth somewhere between four dollars and $500,000 today. He learned of his mistake soon after, and uh, it does have a, a happy ending to the story. They kept farming, but they also started looking for gold. And um, you can actually still go to that Reed Gold Mine and pan for gold today. They ended up being quite wealthy. We might think of that Fayetteville jeweler as a crook and a cheat. But I'm going to tell you something. He knew treasure when he saw it, and he had to have it. And he offered John Reed whatever price he wanted for that golden stone. On the flip side was John. John Reed held the same gold stone in his hands, but he failed to recognize its value. How you view God's word is important. Do you recognize the value of what you have? To claim that these words come from the all-powerful creator of the universe, 
the timeless and personable and infinite being from which everything radiates. To claim that we have access to that sort of truth is worth stewing on for just a little bit. If verse 16 of our key text is true, if you really embrace it, then how you view God's word changes. Which brings us to our last question, how do these things make us wise for salvation? The text states very plainly, through faith in Christ Jesus. John 5.39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. That's Jesus. Or Jesus says again in Luke 24, 25-27, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You know, we often think of scripture as this instruction book on living, and that isn't actually what it is. The primary purpose of God's word is to push you to faith in Christ. It teaches us who he is and why he came and what happened to him and what it means for us. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8, Paul says he's going to deliver something of first importance, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God became flesh and he dwelt among us and this was his plan from the beginning and there is eternal salvation and eternal life that's available through him. And God wrote a book to tell us about it. Have you read it? Do you believe it? Now, Scripture certainly does more than just bring us to faith in Christ. It does more than just show us where to find salvation. It prepares us for eternity. It teaches us how to live. And this we're going to discuss next week. For now, I want to ask, what does does today's lesson mean for you? Church, you have the most valuable thing in the world at your disposal. You probably have so many of them on your bookshelves you couldn't count them. Every word in that book matters. There is nothing of insignificance. Every word in this book came from God. And there is no part to be dismissed or ignored or viewed as less than. And salvation is found by looking for Christ in the text and being pressed into faith, believing that he was real, that he was God, that he raised from the dead, and that you will be too. And what does this mean for us as a church? It means that scripture should be central in everything that we do. We need to understand first and foremost who Christ is and what he did for us. Our approach to this book must be with reverence and awe. It is not my job to give you my opinion or the role of Bible class for us to share our feelings on a topic. It is our goal to unpack what God said to us and understand it and be changed by it. This is a church committed to being a people of the word, not because we want to read the rule book right. We love God's word because it presses us to faith in Christ. A lot of you have probably heard of a linchpin. We usually use it metaphorically, It refers to this central or pivotal fact or person that holds something complicated together. Um, This is an actual linchpin. 
And it was a piece on a wagon wheel that kept the whole thing from falling apart. Now, I don't have a lot of experience with wagons, but I did grow up playing Oregon Trail and Computer Lab. And let me tell you, you do not want to lose a wagon wheel. <clears throat> that is bad for the crew. Now, I may not have experience with this, but I do have experience with, with losing lug nuts. And let me just tell you, an 8,000-pound tractor does not work well with the lug nuts broken off of it. You can find yourself totally out of commission over a little quarter pound of of bolts. When we have the right understanding of Scripture, everything is properly held in place and it works like it's supposed to. But we run into major trouble when we lose this unifying, all important linchpin of life the words of God in written form. We are anchored, and Scripture is the linchpin. People often connect us to Scripture, and like we learned last week, and Scripture connects us to Christ by building our faith. Scripture sits there, central stage, and it is oh so important during every season of life. How thankful I am for God's Word. Have you been doing what it says? If you haven't heard about Christ, this book has some amazing news. It teaches us that God showed up as a man, that he suffered and died bearing the shame that we deserve, that he was raised from the dead on the third day, defeating death, and that he's offered us eternal life in heaven if we would follow him. We would love to show you what the book says about this. If you've studied and are ready to put on Christ in baptism, the water is ready. If you've slipped away from your first love, we're prepared to forgive and walk with you in repentance. Whatever your need might be, we invite you to come forward as we stand and as we sing.